All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. I usually don't do this, but I would, if you were not here last Sunday, like you to listen to the sermon online, um, if you can, because we're in a four-week series on corporate prayer, and we have our three loves on the wall that we talk about regularly here, and we're really talking in the first two months of the new year about loving God together, and uh, we're talking about especially uh, how we love God together uh, by praying together. And my message this morning is called The Church Prayer Meeting That Shook the House. It's taken out of Acts 3 and 4, and for sake of time, I'm going to synopsize Acts chapter 3 for you and the beginning of Acts chapter 4. Uh, and if you your Bibles, I'll be, I'll be kind of walking through kind of the end of Acts chapter 4. But essentially, you know, Christ ascends... Uh, he gives the apostles the power to be witnesses to him, uh, and then Pentecost happens, the church uh, sparks, and we think anywhere between five and 10,000 people come into the church at its birth, and there's immediate controversy. Peter and John are the disciples, and they actually walk into the temple courts, and one of the first controversies was there was a man sitting at the gate called the Beautiful Gate. And uh, he was lame from his birth, and he was over 40 years old, is what we know about him, and he begged for money. And, you know, to have a disability like that in those days was pretty much a sentence to poverty. And so when Peter and John walked through the gate, he asked them for money, and they look at him and they say these words, look at me. And he looks at them, and they say, hey, we have no money. But you know what? We're going to give you something else. And they reach down, they grab him by the hand, and they pull him up. And the Bible says that his ankles received strength, and he stood on his own two feet, and he walked into the temple with them, walking and jumping and praising God. Okay, so, and that's going to create a scene in a hushed, you know, uh, lobby there as you walk into the temple courts. And it causes such a stir that they walk up to Solomon's colonnade there, and they stand up on the steps, and the people are saying, hey, how did this happen? We've known this guy for decades. Uh, since he was born, he had this problem, and now he's better. How did you do this? And Peter and John say, well, we have to tell you that we didn't do it. God did it. And by the way, you all here, you killed him. But it's okay, because you were ignorant that that was really God. Well, I mean, you can imagine the shock that people had. And so the religious leaders, I mean, if you read the beginning of Acts 4, it's all of them. I mean, it's the Sadducees and the chief priests and everybody. They bring them up, uh, and they arrest them, throw them into prison, and then they have this hearing. And then they basically said to them, hey, how did you guys do this thing? And then Peter, it says in verse 9, he was filled with the Holy Ghost, and he says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, I mean, this is sarcasm, folks, right? I mean, this is like Enneagram 8 material, right? <laughs> it's the challenger. Are we being called to account for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame? He goes, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way. Same speech, right? God did it, and you killed him, all right? And then he says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
But then in verse 14, it's almost humorous. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. He's standing there as the testimony. So they basically withdrew and said, what are we going to do? If we uh, incarcerate these men much longer, like the people are going to, we're going to start an uproar here. So they said, let's just threaten them to stop talking about Jesus. Let's just do that. Let's bring them in. They're all like, good plan, good plan, good plan, good plan. So they all come back in. There's Peter and John. They said, hey, we want you guys to say, shut up. And I love what they said. They said, but Peter and John in verse 19 says, which is right in God's eyes, listen to you or to him? You be the judge. I mean, I mean essentially, the guy is standing next to them who was healed, and he's like, do you think we should obey you guys, or do you think we should obey him? Like, we actually saw the risen Christ. We saw God raise a dead body to life. Then we just saw God strengthen his ankles. What have we seen you guys do? So I don't, if I'm going to obey somebody, I think I'm going to obey him, right? And they walk out. Now, if, I mean, that's boldness. I mean, boldness is used over and over and over again. So the overriding emotion in the church right now then has to be this fear because they have caught the attention of the people who have killed Jesus. So that means basically their lives are on the line here and they kind of know it, but they're not backing down at all from what they feel is right. And so they actually call a prayer meeting um, of the church. I just want to say this, prayer can never be a special department of the church for special people. Prayer has got to be for all people in the church. Now, there are people that seem like they are prayer warriors. I would actually love for that term to go away. Because that, all that says is there's the prayer elite over there, and the rest of us just struggle and muddle to keep our concentration for five minutes. There are no real prayer warriors, right? We are all called to be the prayer warriors, I guess you would say, because we're all given the Spirit of God. So what do they say, starting in verse 23? It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord. I said last week, the way we're going to get better at prayer is not studying prayer. It's going to be studying God. Because actually, they spend five verses talking about the greatness of God and the work of God before they ever talk about their need or their request. They say, God, who is the creator of all things. He made heaven and earth and the sea. This is an exact quote of Psalm 146, verse 6. It says, that, that says, he does not live in temples made by man, Acts 17 says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, this is the God who made the world, and this is who we pray to. What kind of world did God create? Let's just look at what we know about this sovereign Lord who created heaven and earth. That, my friends, is a picture of our galaxy known as the Milky Way. It has a diameter of 150 to 200,000 light years. We think in the Milky Way galaxy there are 100 to 400 billion stars and 100 billion planets. 
And by the way, they think we're kind of in the neighborhood of a local group of galaxies called the Virgo supercluster, which is a component of a Linnea K supercluster, okay? If you take the Milky Way, okay, if you take our solar system, like from here to Neptune, and that is the size of a quarter, a U.S. quarter, and you put it right here, the Milky Way is the size of the United States from coast to coast. Our solar system is a quarter inside the Milky Way. Or we have Hubble has given us these images of Messier 92, the brightest global cluster in the Milky Way. This just cluster has 330,000 stars in total. Or we see this picture of the butterfly galaxy. It lies, this galaxy lies within our Milky Way galaxy. It is 3,800 3, light years away in the constellation of Scorpius. Or we have Monocerotus. This is this beautiful picture. We have no idea why this even exists and what it's all about. All we just got to sit back and say, glory, how beautiful is this? Or what's called the Crab Nebula. Or even this, when we actually compare our solar system to other solar systems, we are the Milky Way. We are stuck right here in the center, this little quarter-sized shape. Over here, you have Hercules. Hercules is, we're 100 to 200 million light years across. Hercules is 2 billion light years across. Then Hubble took, takes this picture, and they basically say, this is a picture that we actually looked deep into our, uh, uh, get the galaxies and deep into space to get a slice of the cosmos, they said. It is, they call this picture a core sample of the universe that cuts across billions of light years. It took Hubble, folks, 800 photos to get this photo and 400 trips around the Earth to get this photo. And they now think that this photo alone has 10,000 galaxies, but it is a core sample. We used to think we had 176 billion other galaxies. Now they realize with this core sample, as they expanded out, Forbes says, we think now we know how many there are. But there is 90% more than we thought. There are actually 2 trillion galaxies. There are 2 trillion Milky Ways. Folks, this is, this is amazing. And I say that because we've got to study God because we sometimes take our little problems to God. Say, God, can, can you help me find a new job? I, I think he's insulted sometimes that we would be so stressed about it when he put out two trillion galaxies that thousands of years uh, of, of human progress and we still can't hardly take a picture of it and, and grasp its depth. But even then, this God who is cosmic, who created at least two trillion galaxies, and we sit on the quarter. We're like the nose hair inside the man's face on the quarter as Earth. And he's the God of the two trillion galaxies. But the Bible says, you know what? He also knows the birds. He actually knows when a sparrow drops to the ground. There are 1.4 billion sparrows in the world. And the God of two trillion galaxies knows every single one of them. 
I don't know if you've watched uh, BBC's Our Planet, but I, to me, I would encourage everyone to watch it because it is, I just sit there, they are worship documentaries. I sit there and I just go, wow, God is so amazing. I want to give a, a brief three-minute clip here to show how much God has taken his care and his love and his design, and he's actually put it down into the birds. And we'll see a picture of a bird, and we'll see the absolute stunning glory of God. So go ahead. ...of a prospective mate. From one crow-like ancestor, birds of paradise have evolved into 40 different kinds. Every corner of this island has its own version. Meet the black sicklebill of New Guinea's highlands. Able to morph into some very unbird-like shapes. male bird of paradise has a unique display for attracting mates. And none is more extraordinary than the one that takes place on this stage. Guys, take note of this scene. It's very important. For the owner, a western parotia, there's work to be done first. Every morning, he clears his court of the night's fallen debris. It's a vital chore if he wants to attract a mate. Females only visit the tidiest courts. So one rogue leaf might ruin his chances. Obsessive housework pays off, and a female drops in for a closer look. Now is his chance to really impress, but it won't be easy. Females are very fussy, and she'd expect his carefully choreographed routine to be faultless. He opens with a bow. Next, his blue eye must flash yellow. So far, so good. He has all the moves. Fancy footwork. The whirling dervish. The head-poo shuffle with spin. Her erect head feathers and quivering wings are a very encouraging sign. His sidestep and head bob look good from any angle. But his crowning glory can only be appreciated from her perspective. Wait for it. There it is, a flash of his iridescent throat patch. Her excitement grows. 
his performance has been a triumph. And he wins her approval. Yeah. Anybody try that on Valentine's night? <laughs> I, I was at Valentine's dinner. I couldn't get my neck to, to glow. So um, just, just think of a God. Why did he do that? That in some ecosystem somewhere in this world, this little dance goes on that for thousands of years nobody ever even saw. And now we're sitting here and saying, Oh, God, sovereign Lord, creator of the galaxies, creator of the birds. Why does he do that? To give him glory. Amen. I remember the first time I dipped under the water uh, scuba diving, and I remember Josh Larson said to me, we got up out of the boat, and he said, God could have made that all brown. Why did he make it so colorful down there? Why? Because it, it gives glory, and it says there must be this grand mind behind this who loves the world and who loves us. And then it says in verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. That seems like a throwaway phrase, but this is essentially what God's love shows us, that God didn't hide himself so that we couldn't see him. He revealed himself, and that's really the process of inspiration. God, through the Holy Spirit, spoke to David and revealed himself and showed us what he thought and what he thought was important and how we should live life. So God is the sovereign creator, but he is also the revealer of himself. And then they, they quote the Old Testament here in Psalm 2, and it says, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. They're saying, you have this phenomenal plan in place, that was according to your sovereign will. And we recognize it, that even on the worst day of human history, you were behind the whole thing. Most people think of predestination as a reason not to pray. If the plan's already figured out, and folks, God is the supreme historian who's written all history before it ever began. There's no surprises in his will. then why pray? All I can say to you is this, the early church did not see it that way. They believed 100% in the sovereign will of God and that he had written out all of human history and that if they got together and prayed together, they could actually move him. They could actually see God do something in their midst. So you can also realize this, that the, some of the worst days of your life can be redeemed to be the best days because the Bible says God's in charge of it all. Even the sinful stuff and unjust stuff, he is going to ultimately weave that on and cause that to backfire upon the wicked. I want to say this because they were saying, God, you're in total control. And if that is the truth, then we ought to be in his court praying. If he listens to his children, we tend to think because of the world we live in, the culture we were raised in, the money that we make, that we actually are in control. Can I just encourage you with the fact that the Bible says you're not? You do not control hardly anything. Amen. You do not control your breath. The Bible says, Job 12:10, in his hand is the life of every th living thing and the breath of all mankind. You said it. Amen. You said it, Jerry. He's in charge of the breath you breathe, he's in charge of your life. 
Daniel 5, Daniel's speaking to Belshazzar, and he says, You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. God holds you his, your life in his hands, and he's in charge of the length of them. I don't care how much you're on that treadmill. I don't care how much paleo stuff you digest, Right? <laughs> Ultimately, the days of your of life are determined. God has decreed them, and he has set limits, the Bible says in Job 14.5, that you cannot exceed. Your day of death is already appointed, and you can't move it no matter how hard you try. You're not in charge of your finances. The Bible says God's the one who makes rich, and God's the one who make, makes poor. The Bible says even the people who throw lots... Every decision of the lot, the gambler, is from the Lord. Your direction, your ways. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. But even the bad things that happen, Isaiah 45, 7 says, God says, I form light and I form darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. This is the God of the universe. We all have heard that verse on election season that God's the one who controls the elections. He's the one who sets up kings and tears them down. And that when they get into office, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he wants it to go. That changes your rage factor, by the way. You don't have to get as worked up as the rest of the society is. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That God has a will that will ultimately prevail in the universe. You say, well, you haven't talked at all about prayer. I think this is everything about prayer. Yet then if he made Hercules, the galaxy that's two billion light years across, and he makes a dancing bird. And, but he says, you are the apple of my eye. And when you come and talk to me, I listen to you. I think it has everything to do with it. Amen. So what did they request? It says, they lifted their voices together. And when they heard it, when they heard the need, and they were putting themselves in the shoes of Peter and John and going, man, if I were them, I'd be scared to death. I mean, this is months after Jesus is crucified. The knee-jerk reaction of the early church was prayer. I think uh, Sarah Root. In the years I've known Sarah Root, she always walks up in her kind voice. After Jason has made a plan, she goes, do you think we should pray? I go, God, give me that reflex reaction. I've got this disease in my heart that immediately when I see a need, I, I make a plan. But there is no plan as good as the power of God. Because God can, God can supersede it all. So we call a church prayer meeting. We call a church prayer meeting. And when I say that to people inside, emotionally, 90% of church congregants kind of die. Have you been to church prayer meetings? I've been to church prayer meetings, folks, since I was two. Every single Wednesday night till I was 33 years old, I went to a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And they were the most boring, lifeless times in the congregation that I've ever had in my life. I hated Wednesday night prayer meeting. Now, I'm a pastor. You can judge me for it all you want. I'm just telling you the truth. They were lifeless, spiritless uh, health requests. 
by people who did not know how to stop talking. And then we prayed for like three minutes. And we walked out and I said, there's got to be something better than this. Maybe we could take, I mentioned this last week, the script from a little church in southern Germany, pastored by Count Zinzendorf, and the church was kind of fighting a little small church. And that church had a little gathered there in southern Germany in August 17, 27. They finally had a uh, communion service, and the warring factions of the church came together. And out of that was birthed a 24-hour prayer meeting that started two weeks later that lasted 100 years without stopping. With 24 single men, 24 single women, divided it up and launched the greatest prayer movement in world history. Small little church. Pete Grieg in Red Moon Rising says, Along the way we've discovered that prayer, the spiritual discipline that plagues us all with boredom and guilt, is in fact a laboratory of new possibilities, a launch pad for the wildest and most preposterous of dreams. Can we look at prayer that way? That if we get a God who can make Hercules and a dancing bird that can make his neck light up, then perhaps prayer and talking to him ought to be a little bit better than a list of health needs of my aunt in Maryland? It's got to be better than that, folks. I'll pray for your aunt in Maryland. But that's, 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 I, I want to see God, Amen. right? I want to see God show up. So let's look at prayer more as a, as a menu. Patty on the prayer team said this to me yesterday. She said, Ephesians 6.18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all kinds of prayer. That there is spiritual warfare prayers that would probably shake up a Wednesday night church prayer meeting. Like John Piper says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. It's not designed to make your boat start this afternoon. That's not what prayer is for. Amen. There is quiet and listening prayer. I think we've over-exalted words. Romans 8 promises that we walk into the room of prayer and just inside we groan. The Spirit takes our groanings and makes them into prayers. We can pray the scriptures. My boys are on this overseas missions trip and they are teaching me about prayer. One of the things they do is they, they call it ATL prayer, where they walk into a city, and it's ATL week. They just wake up in the morning, and they ask the Lord. And they get together with their friends, and they go, do what God tells them to do. That would freak me out. I mean, I've got a calendar. I've got meetings. I've got things i got to do, right? How do we ask the Lord and just follow his will? I made a handout here for this morning. It's off to the side. I have 50 copies called How to Have a Holy Hour. If you've never spent an hour in prayer with God and you think that's the most, that sounds like Christian Marine talk to me, there's 12 steps that you can have an hour with God and walks you through the different kinds of prayer. And I encourage you to take that. God thinks, Greg says this, God thinks much more of your desires than of the words in which they are expressed. Do not ask, not ask for what some tell you they should ask, that you should ask for, but for that which you feel the need of. What the Spirit has made you to hunger and to thirst for, that's what you ask for. So I really want to see God step in and do something significant through a prayer movement here in our church. And we need leaders. We need your help. If you have a passion for God's presence, lead out. You've got to help people like me who get all wrapped up in our heads around this thing called prayer. We need to invest in prayer. The prayer team has sown in this for a year and a half, and I've been kind of convicted because we actually invest financially in the half hour of music that we play on Sunday mornings, but we don't have a budget line for prayer. 
Do we really believe in it? The Bible talks way more about prayer than musical worship, but we invest the money into other forms of worship, paying the preacher, paying the band, you know, that, those kind of things. I don't say that in any way to, to degrade the musical worship. I just say we're out of balance. We're out of balance that we should be thinking about what does it take to truly invest in this. So tonight, I felt the nudge in my study to call that we just start and just say who's in it on the prayer thing. And starting a, a 24-hour prayer meeting tonight at 5 o'clock and going through 5 o'clock tomorrow night. There's sign-up sheets here for every hour from 5 o'clock tonight till 5 o'clock tomorrow night. And at the end of our service, I want to encourage you to come and say, hey, I want to love God together and pray as a group together. The doors will be open the whole time. Um, the guys who do this say the best hours are 2 to 4 o'clock in the morning. So I just encourage somebody to be brave and jump into that space. And I'm asking God for 48 people. If Zinzendorf started it with 48 people who said they give themselves an hour a week to prayer, then can we do that here as a church? I showed this letter last week of somebody who was... Uh, asking that I would help bring a group together to help people find their wives and husbands at Providence. And I said to you, I can't do that, right? I got a lot of feedback on that letter this week. <laughs> and I said to you, I said, I can't get you a husband or a wife, but I know a God who can. Amen. So before you amen too loud, <laughs> at 10 o'clock, I'm going to be in that room tonight. I'm going to pray for anybody and with anybody who has this deep burden in their heart to be married. Now, if three guys and three gals show up, it might be a little awkward, because I might just call it and say, you guys got this, you know, but, but I'm just going to, I know it's a pain, a deep pain in some people's hearts. I just want to be there and pray with you. And if, you're, if you don't want it, that's not your style, give me a piece of paper with your name on it and say, pray for me. I'll just be in here praying for you. That God delivers in that area. The request was, when they actually got down and got the prayer, prayer request, you would think they would ask for a miracle. I'd be praying against those jerks in the trial, those religious leaders who were phonies. But what did they pray for? Not a miracle, not for deliverance. They were actually praying for strength to be bold in their exercise of civil disobedience. Eugene Peterson said prayer is a subversive activity that involves more or less an open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime. We are saying there's a greater Lord. There is somebody who's in greater control. God, give them boldness as you stretch out your hand to heal. Do we believe in healing? Yes, we do. Signs and wonders being performed. In the book of Acts, folks, it wasn't just the apostles who did signs and wonders. There were two deacons, Stephen and Philip, who did signs and wonders. Amen. We need God to do some signs and wonders in our neighborhood. I look at the, the gentrification issue in our neighborhood, and I look at the displacement happening and say, God, you've got to show up and do something miraculous here. The loneliness created by technology in our culture, the transience of relationships, the entertainment industry that tends to numb us to having time to pray, a culture that ignores God. We need God to show up in a big way. Amen. And God will answer. The Bible says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak of the word of God with boldness. Have you ever had an answer to prayer that shook you? Let me raise your hand and say, there has been a time in my life where I reached out to God and he answered a prayer and it shook me. Raise your hand. Raise it up high. Okay. 
well over half the crowd has experienced this moment where God shook them to their core by the fact that he answered the prayer. God longs to show himself to his people. Anne Lamott, the author, wrote a book on prayer, and she called it Help, Thanks, Wow. (laughs) That's kind of prayer, right? Help, God. Oh, thanks for helping. Wow, that was beyond what I could ask or think. But I will say there are people here who've had unanswered prayer, too. And I want you to know that God will sometimes rescue from the pain, and we call that a miracle. But sometimes God will actually get down in the valley of the shadow of death and walk with you, and that's just as great of a miracle. The place was shaken. There was a tangible sense of God's presence. Folks, I just hunger for more of God in my life and in this church. We are Providence Bible Church, and we hold doctrine really strong and the word really strong. Do we hold an urgency for the presence of the Holy Spirit just as strong? This is the concoction. This is the mix that we want to see here. Do we really desire God and want to be in his presence? And the Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What is this? This is just a fresh filling and renewed awareness of the Spirit's power and and witness in their lives. I was listening to a sermon by John Tyson out of New York, and he talked about the stages of God's work in the church. That we have the stage of regeneration, that's when people come to Christ, and most churches are just satisfied with this first level. This is just people coming to Jesus. Then there's restoration, people restore their lives and repair the broken pieces. We've seen that happen here. And then there's this corporate side of the church where you move into this stage of reformation. This is like the church is is broken, it's calcified, it's lost its heart. We need something different. Folks, Providence was birthed in a reformation movement, saying we need to see the church actually make a difference in the street. This was our genesis. But then it moves into renewal. There's energy. People are coming to the Lord. The poor are glad. There's discipleship taking place. People are seeking God, not just the leaders. And I think we're actually currently as a church in a season of renewal where we're seeing a lot of great things happen. But then there's revival. If you're paying attention to the culture at large, churches are closing faster than we're opening them. People are leaving the church. We will blink our eyes and 14 million millennials will walk out the door. We need revival. What is that? An acceleration of the work of the Spirit. Well, then if what God really did at a few choice times in history is through his church, we saw this with Zinzendorf, there was a cultural awakening where there's actually cultural renewal. One author said, the hinge of history is the bended knee. I would love to see us move out of renewal and into a phase of revival where there's a fresh wind of the Spirit in our lives as a church. And what do they do? They continue to speak with boldness. The Bible says the fruit of that is in verse 32. And now the full number who believed were of one heart and one soul. This idea of prayer brought unity. Then, you know what? People shared their stuff with others. And the Bible says great power in verse 33 and great grace. That, that, that Greek word great is mega. When we hear mega church now, what do you think about? A mega church is a church that has 2,000 people coming into the room on Sunday or more. That's a mega church. This is not the New Testament idea of a mega church. It is a church that has mega power and mega grace. 
And that's available to churches of any size. I want to be a mega church, but in this Acts chapter 4 sense, I really don't care how many people come in to hear a sermon and songs in the sanctuary on a Sunday. I don't care. I want to see God show up. And if it only does it with eight of us, fine, right? I want to see mega power and mega grace. I want more of God in my life. And I just want to say this, that then what happens is neighbors are loved in verse 34. They cured poverty in their midst. In Red Moon Rising, Greg says, if you were to sequence the 24-7 prayer genome, you would discover little else but the three essential gospel imperatives, prayer, mission, and justice. This is our DNA. With it, we can change the world. Without all three, we're merely a bunch of second-rate social workers pursuing justice without prayer, secondhand salesmen of religion without justice, or pious hermits so focused on heaven we lost all earthly usefulness. We want it all. I like how Eugene Peterson writes Amos 5, 21 through 24 in the message. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. That's a prophet, Amos, Amos chapter 5. So this is our challenge. And I say this, we can't maintain this on our own. The Bible says we have, this, we have the same spirit that the early church had. We have the community of faith which sustains us and encourages us. And we have Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews, he is a sympathetic high priest. The, the idea of sympathy there is that he feels in his heart like we feel. And the Bible says he was tempted in every point like we were. So every temptation you've ever had in prayer, Jesus had it. And he feels your feelings about prayer. And we have the throne of grace. And the Bible says we can go to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need because we have Jesus. Amen. It was two years ago that two women in our church who were visiting uh, came off of a one-year missions trip. And I sat at Starbucks and I looked at all their pictures. And they didn't talk about the different territories and the refugees they were helping in Greece and all that, they mainly just talked about the presence of God that they felt on that trip. And that was known as the world race, and now my two sons are doing that thing because of their influence. So I asked them to close the service today by coming up. We actually have three uh, people that have been on that trip, Cam, Nicole, and Anna. And if they would come and talk about what God taught them about prayer, and I think when you hear it fleshed out in their lives, perhaps it becomes a little more accessible to you when you think about prayer. So you guys come on up. Thanks for being able to share your story this morning. Hey. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, yeah, so Jay asked us to share a little bit about our experience on the world race. Um, the three of us went in 2015. And for the three of us, I think it, I can speak for all of us and say that was like the first time we had lived in community um, with a large group of people. We were traveling internationally for a year where we were experiencing what it felt like to actually live in a culture and a community of prayer uh, where the spirit of prayer was palpable most days. Um, 
And for me personally, I grew up Catholic, and then I went, I stopped being Catholic when I was 18, went to non-denominational church for a long time. And then when I was 28, was called to go to the world race. And a huge fear that I walked onto the world race with was this whole thing where you pray over people. <laughs> like you say your prayers out loud over people. And the Lord started that breaking of a lot of lies, I believed, that I wasn't spiritual enough, that I didn't have enough wisdom. I didn't understand why some people prayed for so long. <laughs> I'm a very efficient person, and I only have a few <laughs> things to say, and that should be enough, right? <laughs> um, and there were a lot of lies wrapped up in that. Um, and the Lord began almost immediately, September of 2015, breaking off those lies um, of that we all walk with the same power and authority of God. Amen. And we all can speak, we can, we can ask God in his holy name for things, and we can pray over people. Um, and that, that changed my life. Um, and we, fast forward to October, so to give you a story that fleshes this out, October, we were in Macedonia, Anna and I together. Um, and uh, long story short, Anna got bronchitis and then she had pneumonia and she was bed bound for 10 days and we had these three flights of stairs we had to go up. And she couldn't, she literally could not go downstairs or upstairs without like becoming short of breath. So she was like confined to this third story in Macedonia. And um, she couldn't go to ministry, all this kind of stuff. So uh, she came to me, and I'll let her speak a little bit more to this, but she came to me and was basically, I think you're day five or something, I, I don't even remember. She was halfway through just being secluded, essentially. Um, and she was just feeling really down. Um, and she came to me and was telling me kind of what was going on, um, a lot of lies she was battling, um, depressive thoughts, that kind of thing. And she was just like, can you pray for me? or something along those lines. And I, was just, I felt that I needed to pray. And I look back on it now, year, five years now later, and I didn't realize this at the time, but I had entered into a space of essentially spiritual warfare, right? And I was being asked to partner with someone in that. And I felt ill-equipped. However, there's something that happens when you're in these communities where you're just like, but I do live in this power. So I stepped into that space, but I felt a heavy prompting that it couldn't just be me. It had to be the rest of our team, and we had like seven other people with us. And I remember going downstairs and just kind of in tears and saying, we need prayer now. And so they all came upstairs, and I'll kind of let you take it from there, and um, yeah. prayed over Anna. Yeah, yeah I think you <laughs> uh, covered that really well. I was in that space that was more than just, I, my lungs need healing, right? It had affected my mind and my spirit to the point where I was sliding down that depression area and just getting that attack from the enemy and you're not worth it and what are you here for? Like they were doing my favorite ministry, guys. They were working with special needs children and that was my jam and I couldn't even go because I was stuck in bed um, and I was really scared and I didn't know how to ask. And my brain was saying, ask your team to pray, ask your team to pray. And I couldn't even get out of my mouth. Instead, the Holy Spirit gave it to Nicole. <laughs> and she said, I think we should ask the team to pray. <laughs> and so she went downstairs, got everybody. Um, even at that point, there's someone who will admit, um, I wasn't really in the mood to pray, but I guess we should probably do this, right? And everyone came together. Uh, and they came upstairs, and I couldn't get any words out of my mouth. I couldn't pray at that point. And they just did it on my behalf. It's very powerful. The coolest part beyond that community, that relief that someone stepped in on my behalf and helped me um, 
with the prompting of the Holy Spirit was that it led into multiple hours of prayer for our team. Um, and it wasn't just us. It was from the Holy Spirit in prompting us into prayer. And none of us woke up that day expecting to have a two-hour prayer meeting for each other. But we started praying over each other's identities and tears. And a lot of healing happened just because someone stepped out and said something. Um, so a very practical testimony. Um, but just pausing and being able to, even Nicole's boldness, to step up and say, I'm not comfortable with this, but this is what I think we should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was one way it looked. Cam's going to talk about some other ways that it looked. Uh, yes. Um, I, we did at the same time, but I was on a different team, if you will. Um, so we have very similar experiences, but um, across different countries, which is, really, which is really neat. And Jason asked us, what was, what was the spirit of prayer on, on, on this world race? And the, the, a, a big part of the spirit of prayer was actively engaging in the listening side of it. Um, I, I, too, I, I came from Methodist Church. Literally, there's eight rules of worship in the, in the front of the hymnal. No, no hands up. No. So anyway, just this whole concept of praying out loud and all this stuff, very foreign to me. What, what is going on? And, um, but especially this, this listening prayer. And um, there's actually a book here. Uh, Anna's going to hold it up um, by Seth Barnes. And um, we would really encourage any of y'all, if, if you would be willing to or, or wanting to actively engage in listening prayer. It's a wonderful book. Um, Seth Barnes is the founder of the World Race. But um, Real quick, it's called The Art of Listening Prayer. Oh, excuse me, yes. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Yes. It's a like 30-day Devo type thing to if you want to practice what it means to have a two-way conversation with the Lord. Yes, and so uh, we, on the race, we, we really fought to... to jump into this listening prayer and it's it's literally you know coming coming together and praying into the time holy spirit we just pray that you would just cover us in this moment and we just ask that you would open our ears open our hearts open our minds to what you are doing and so just like jason was was saying these atl weeks i did a whole month of it um but you you do you just wake up in the morning get going come together, okay, Lord, what are you doing here? What are you calling us to do? And it's, it's super hard, but we would just sit and listen. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, uh, whether that's through our thoughts, our feelings, images that they're giving us, um, that, that the Holy Spirit's given us. Uh, just a quick example of that is in Malaysia, we, that was our whole month of, of ATL, and one one morning, our team did it. Half the team, they, the Holy Spirit kind of spoke to them and led them to do a, a, a prayer walk through the city. And me and my partner, uh, SB, uh, we, uh, the Holy Spirit kind of spoke to us and said, go, like, go, go love on some people. Um, like physically love on people. And we're like, what is that? And it's like, give them hugs. Sweet. We can do that. And so we, we did the thing. We went to the store, got the poster, said free hugs on it. And we're in the middle of Kuala Lumpur in the front of the Petronas Towers waving these things around. And it was, it was super sweet. People came up to us, gave us hugs. Some people asked what we were doing. Some people didn't. But through that, um, this, this sweet, sweet girl, um, our, our age, um, 
she asked what we were doing, and we 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 told her, um, and she said, I, "I've been wanting, I've been wanting to like, like get to know this this God, this this Jesus person," and um, we. We, we like led her through prayer and she eventually accepted Christ uh, the next day. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful way that the, the, the spirit moves through us. And we, we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't just sit and listen. Um, so I say that, that that's one that, that was a huge spirit of prayer on the race was actively listening to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And I just want to mention a couple other ways that we would corporately pray as we would do this really cool thing called waterfall prayer, um, where you all come together. It's like, we're going to pray for Nicole's knee, you know, it's hurting or whatever, or we're going to pray for a, a prayer movement in the church. And you all pray together all at the same time out loud. It's, it's really weird at first <laughs> when you're not used to it, but it's super cool. And it's very, very powerful. So we would do that. Another thing we would do is laying of hands. We would lay our hands on each other, pray over someone that's, <clears throat> that's going off to another country or praying over our ministry host that we were leaving to, to leave them with, with the Holy Spirit and with good wishes moving forward. So th- those are just a few ways that we actively engaged in corporate prayer on the race, and it's very, very powerful. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just to tie, I guess tie it all together is that um, praying making this an active part of your life challenged, I think, the three of us deeply. Like, it, it challenged us, and it put us in a, in a very uncomfortable, I felt uncomfortable on the race all the time. Like, I felt like, you became comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it pushes you to a deeper intimacy and space at the present, like, what it feels like to be at the feet of God, <laughs> collectively with other people. And like, the Lord shows up, so. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thanks, guys. So we're going to close like we did uh, last week um, with being comfortable with being uncomfortable and that we're not just going to teach about it and teach about prayer and not do it. So we're going to close the last 10 minutes of the service by encouraging everybody to go to corporate prayer. This is basically the sanctuary laid out. We're looking for leaders to help lead a prayer movement. I'm going to go over there and pray with you. Up here, you can sign up for the 24-hour prayer meeting. We're praying for 48 people. Over here, if you need... Uh, healing, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Jeff Cook will be here with the oil. If you just need prayer and you want someone to lay hands on you, you just stay seated in the center section. A couple of our prayer team members will be there. If you'd like to pray for, pray for revival and awakening in our church in our city there, the Aurora Church Plant, back by the interpretation booth window. And then if you want to pray that God sparks a prayer movement in this church, go out these doors and you can pray outside or inside the prayer room together. And let's become a praying church and ask God to do something here. I recognize this makes some people feel super uncomfortable. Kevin, thanks for giving us great space to be shy. You don't have to pray, but I would like to, I'd like to push everybody to be part of a group and not just take the easy way out. And just if you just got to listen and say, God, uh, I'm just going to be here in this space. I want you to work through me. We just don't want to be a normal church, folks. I mean, I am so sick of what has become church. That it's like we need, I just want more of God. I want to see him show up in a unique way. And I want to see God do the stuff he did in the early church. So please, if you're going to come to the prayer meeting, come and sign up. That's 5 o'clock to 5 o'clock all the way down here in order. And then move to your groups. 
And then uh, we, will, we will close in brief prayer after that, and we'll go on our way.